0: We are working our way as a church through Exodus, the book of Exodus, and uh, it's the second book in the Bible. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, please turn to Exodus chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the, the row in front of you. You can grab that on page number 53 is where you'll find Exodus chapter 12. If you're new to reading the Bible, if you open it up to that page and you see a, the big number that's the chapter number, and then there are little small verses in superscript. Those are the verse numbers. We're going to be in chapter number 12, and we're going to read verses 1 through 28 this morning. It's a, it's a good chunk of the passage, but we believe that the Bible is God's authoritative word, and we believe that this is, the, this is really where the authority comes from. And so when we read it, we are listening to the very words of God. What, what's going to happen after that when I preach is hopefully lots of true things, but it's what Kevin is saying about Exodus 12. But we want to read first what God says in Exodus 12. So let's do that. Let's give attention to God's Word. And just remind you of what's come so far, Um, God has sent up to this point... Um, a number, nine plagues against, and that word plague doesn't mean disease in Hebrew, it means a strike or a blow. Basically, God has hit Egypt nine times. Nine times he has struck against Egypt to assert that he is the true God against all of their false gods, what we talked about last week, and so that they will let his people, Israel, go free. That's kind of the dual purpose behind what God is doing. He's asserting that he alone is God, he alone has power, and that he is for his people. And he's announced, uh, last week we looked at uh, the, his announcement of the final plague, the final blow, which is the death of the firstborn. And now today we're going to read about how God's people, what God tells his people to do to not be affected by this particular plague. you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you will keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They must eat it. Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you must let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you must burn in this manner. You will eat it. This is how you're supposed to eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand you must eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day... "...that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but when everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you must observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever." In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native in the land. You must eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go go. "...and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop," which is just a branch, a scrubby branch that they used to paint. "...take a bunch of hyssop, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians." And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You must observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you will keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Let's pray together. Father, this is not... A ceremony that we're very familiar with. This is not a religious observance that probably many of us, if any of us, have ever done. And yet, Lord, it is a pivotal, critical moment in your dealings with your people. And so, God, we need to understand it. And we need your help to understand it. And so, as we talk about the Passover, what it meant for the Israelites and what it means for us. Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts? Would you help us to to hear and understand well? And would you take this word and cause it to bear fruit in our hearts? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is uh, This is probably one of those places in the Bible that, even as I read it, you were probably like, Man, that's... I mean, didn't he say that already? Like we said like the same thing three times. Surely we've said it enough. And that's going to happen again. It happens later on in Exodus. It happens really again, in, in Leviticus, um, which is one of those books that if you're reading through the Bible in a year, you just kind of like skim that one right, like you find yourself sleeping through the book of Leviticus because of the amount of repetition. But what's interesting, and the reason why the Bible writer uh, — why Moses, in this instance, repeats what he does, is it's that important. In a community where not every, like, it was, it was very costly to have a written word, right? When Moses is writing this, there was no such thing as the book, okay? That didn't come along until the printing press, you know, a few thousand years later. So, in order to have, uh, in order to have the written word, right, what you had was a scroll, and then everybody else basically had to memorize what they heard in the synagogue or what they heard of the temple and take it home. And that meant that for the things that were really, really, really important, like how to worship, how to observe the Passover, there was a lot of repetition. OK, so that's why there's repetition. Um, so if you're new to church and you read this, then you're like, man, that was a lot. If you're not new to church, maybe you're familiar with this thing called the Passover or at least sort of familiar with it. Maybe we have a tendency to, uh, as they say, familiarity breeds contempt, right? That I've heard it before, yeah, whatever, sounds good, the lamb, blood, got it, okay. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this with fresh eyes, okay? And so what we're going to do is uh, similar to what they would do if you were going to buy a diamond in a store, Right, They're going to they're gonna take that, or if, you're a, or if you're a diamond purchaser, you know, you've all seen it in the movies, right, where somebody wants to pawn off a ring, and you got the guy with the thing in his eyes, and he's turning it over again and again, looking at it from different directions. That's what we're going to do with the Passover with this passage this morning, all right? We're going we're gonna to look at it from several different facets, which is why on the screen this looks like a five-point sermon, all right? Don't worry, I'm not going to do, like, it'll still be the same length, but I'm not going to make all those points the same but there's going to be five angles that we look at this passage from, okay? So you could even think of it like a, like a whirlpool or a, a spiral staircase, right? As we're, we're going to go around it and we're going to make points. And as we kind of spiral down, we're going to get really to the heart of the matter as we look at all these different angles. So we're going to look at the blood to remember, the blood that severs, the blood that binds, the blood that redeems and the blood to trust. Blood clearly factors hugely in this passage, right? It's one of the most repeated words. So if you're not familiar with this practice, this idea of the Passover, what these people are being told to do is sacrifice a perfect lamb, take a branch of hyssop, dip it in the blood, and then paint their doorpost, right? A very visible sign, if you're looking at their home from the outdoor, right? They didn't—they didn't have what we have, right? There's the front door that nobody goes through, and then the back door, like in the carport, that everybody comes through. They didn't have all that. They just had the one door, right? And so, if you were looking at their home, or you were going to come in, you could very clearly see what mattered, right? You're, you could very clearly see this dried blood on the doorpost. That's the—that's the rite of the Passover that we're about to unpack. So let's talk about. Uh, the blood to remember. And as we go through this, there's kind of one central point I want to make, and it's this. The Passover is the great sign of God's rescue from slavery. This moment, as we're going to find out, changes changes everything. Um, But this sign is not just for the people who experienced it first. It's also for us, because it points us to the great Lamb to come. Right? So the, the Passover is the sign of God's rescue, but it also points us to the Passover lamb to come. So let's talk about the, the blood to remember. I think this was probably in the first year of our, of our marriage. Maybe it was even the first Christmas that we, uh, our first Christmas married together. Rebecca got me this calendar. Uh and, and it was like a calendar you print out. It wasn't like a shutterfly calendar. I'm a little too sarcastic for that. It was printed from a company called Demotivators. I won't go into all that, but you need to check it out. It's funny. But what you could do, right, is you could put your own important dates in the calendar. And so uh she put in like our first date and uh our the day that we got engaged, right? Uh and we and we do that, don't we? We celebrate We celebrate days that are important to us. I mean, think about why, why do we celebrate birthdays? Why do we celebrate anniversaries? Because those are, those are days of beginnings, right? That's, that's a day that the world Changed, right? Your birthday, whether you feel unique or special or not, the world changed on the day that you were born because you were born into it, and so it is a day worth remembering. It is a day worth celebrating. If you're married, we do that with anniversaries, right? That's a new beginning, and it's a day that we celebrate for years to come. So it is with the Passover, right? If you look at um, look at verse two there in chapter 12. God says to Moses and Aaron, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So this is what's really interesting. This day is so important that God actually changes the entire calendar. Right? Think, think about this. Imagine it this way. If Congress were to issue a law that said, hey, The 4th of July will now be the new year, right? January 1st, get rid of that, July the 4th. That will be our New Year's Day. This day, this day when we declared our independence from Great Britain, when our nation was born, such an important day that we want the new year, the whole calendar, to start in this month. That's what God is doing. However they had counted time before that, whatever their calendar had looked like before that, now they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, so maybe they used the Egyptian calendar. Whatever it was, God said, this moment is so incredibly important that it changes everything. It even changes the way that you count time. This will be your new year. This will be your new beginning. Why? Why? I mean, why not just have a special feast day on the calendar? Why change the whole way the calendar is set up? Because from this point forward, this will be the defining moment in the life of their community. This is the moment, really, that Israel is born. Because it's at this moment that God says... I have called you by name. You are mine. I mean, he loved them before this. He made promises to Abram before this. But at this moment, God steps in. He, go, he passes through Egypt to strike them down and says, here we go. We're leaving. You're identified with me. You are my people. And it all begins right now. And so because, uh, because it's, it's such an important moment, because it's a new beginning... It's not just a new day, it's a new life. A new life is God's rescued people, God's blood-bought sons and daughters. That's what the Passover is all about, as a new beginning. And that changes everything, forever, literally. Like, you can keep reading. Let's read uh, verses 14, verse 14. This is how important this was to be. This day shall be a memorial day, literally just a memorial. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. That means every year, as you have children, as you have grandchildren, as they have children, right? We're going to keep celebrating. We're going to remember this forever. Um, Verse 17, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, right? So Moses is not just... um, They didn't celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Egypt. That was the festival that would come later when they got into the Promised Land. But they were actually supposed to set an entire week apart. Can you imagine, maybe it makes you want to go to sleep or stab your eyes out, but can you imagine an entire week of worship, right? That for seven days they were to stop what they were doing every year and remember this moment. Is there anything in your life like that? That takes the whole week. This moment is so pitiful. Pitiful. Pivotal as a key. That you don't want to mess that up. This moment is so pivotal. That they are to set an entire week for the rest of their lives apart. And remember it forever. Look at verse 24. You will observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you will keep this service. And then there's one more aspect to this. Keep going. Verse 26. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You will say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. This isn't only a religious observance. It's what we call a teachable moment. This is the moment, as we would say, when they were supposed to do this all the year, but this was a special moment, and it's what makes having children both beautiful and a little bit trying, right? But especially when they're young, they're really curious, and so everyone who's had kids knows the, the constant why. Why? 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 Right? And so, inevitably... As they are, as they are, selecting the lamb. Uh, four days later, when they slaughter the lamb, as they're roasting the lamb with the herbs and they're cooking unleavened bread, the kids are asking why. As they're as they're putting on their cloaks and fastening their belts and not dressing for dinner but dressing for travel, the kids are saying why. And this is the moment. This is the gospel moment, right? When parents are to teach their children, this is what God has done for us. This is the Lord's Passover. And so we can make, by just by way of this, a side application of the crucial role of parents in the development, the religious development of their children, right? We, we're at a moment in history, maybe we're a little bit past this, but we're at a moment in history when uh, I've, I've heard uh, parents say before, like, well, you know, I don't, I don't want to tell them, too much. I want them to make their own decisions. Like, they're two. Um, you sure about that? Like, I've seen the decisions a two-year-old makes. It's not a good thing, right? That, that really, from, from early days, parents are to instruct their children right here, right here, the gospel, the good news of how God has rescued his people from slavery, this is what defines our life, son. This is what defines our life, daughter. These, this is the, these are the calendar, right? This is what begins the year for us. And we ought not take that for granted. I take that for granted. But as the little ones would ask why, is a moment to share the gospel. Is a moment to share what God has done. And we make the transition to the New Testament. We hear Paul say, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Jesus is our new beginning. We may not set the calendar by the day that we've come to know Christ, and yet He is our new beginning. If you've believed in Jesus, you've been released from slavery. You've been set on a new trajectory, on a new life. And that brings us to the next point, the next way we're going to look at this. Let's talk about the blood of that severs, to sever, to cut, to remove. That word exodus means to leave, to get out. And it's by means of this Passover and the death of the firstborn that Israel is removed from Egypt. She's liberated. And we'll talk more about this next week because we're going to see the death of the firstborn and how that plays out. But there's a couple of things I want to point out as we go through here. The first thing is, did you notice how much effort is put on eating in haste? This was not to be a lavish meal. It was to be a quick one. Every aspect of the meal is is meant for speed. So, for instance, the reason the lamb is roasted is because you could easily do that over the fire. It's quicker than boiling, and you don't have to clean any dishes when you're done. Bitter herbs are easy to find. But then particularly the unleavened bread. Now, I'm not much of a chef, and so I'm probably going to get some of this wrong. But when it comes to bread, right, typically the way that we make bread, the way that we enjoy bread is the leaven gets into it, and we allow the dough to rise up as the yeast ferments. Let me see some nods and let me know that I'm kind of on the right track with bread. Okay, good. All right. That's the way, even in the ancient world, there's a, there's a place we got that from, right? Even in the this is the way you ate bread. It took some time. It took time for the dough to rise. Uh, then it took time to bake it. But that's what made it good. That's what made it soft. That's what made it yummy. That's the way you want to eat bread. But the Lord says, you don't have time for that. You just need to roll it out, bake it, and go, right? The bread must be unleavened because this is a quick Process. You are leaving in the morning. In fact, that sacrifice, that meat, you need to count out just what you have, right? Just just enough for the people that you have in your household, or maybe you're going to share with somebody next door, two small families get together. But you make a count just for what you need because the rest of it is to be burned. You're not taking any of it for the road. There are no leftovers from the sacrifice. We got to go, right? All of this is about being in haste. It is time to leave Egypt, even the way that they dress. Let's talk about this. Usually when you come home, if you were at this point in history, when you come home, right, first you would leave your sandals at the door. You didn't want to track the outside in, so you leave your sandals at the door. Your cloak was for traveling, so you left that over there. And the staff was for hiking and for protection. So you left all that at the door, and you got comfortable for dinner, right, you kind of relaxed and chilled out. Well, here, it says that they are to, to, to tighten up their belts. And they, when they would travel, especially with speed, right, you didn't want to trip over your cloak, and so you would tuck it into your belt. You'd tuck it up so that you didn't trip over it, right? Here, they're wearing their sandals while they eat. That would have been taboo. That's a no-no, right? You don't wear your shoes in the house, but at Passover, you do. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, you do, right? And your staff... You got to get your staff because you 're going to need it for travel, so the whole the whole thing, everything revolving around this is about doing it quickly. Eat it in haste let 's get going right don 't relax this is not a relaxing meal it's time to get moving it's time to leave egypt and here's the point about about all of this leaving is harder than staying isn't it even even if you're Young, single, or uh, even if you're young and married, but you don't have children yet, right? Many of you have had to leave a place. You've had to leave what you knew. You had to leave what was familiar, and you had to say goodbye. That's a hard thing. We're meant to be rooted people, and so leaving is harder than staying, even though, even though this was slavery, I want you to think about this. These, these people had been in Egypt for 400 years. They built homes here. This is where their great grandparents were born. Their grandparents, their parents, they had children here. They very likely had grandchildren, maybe even great grandchildren here. This is all they'd ever known. This was home. And yes, it was slavery, yes, it had become oppressive, yes, it had become hard. But now, all of a sudden, they're leaving in less than 24 hours. Kind of imagine the anxiety of that. How much easier would it be to say, I don't know, this sounds pretty costly. i gotta, I got to pick up everything. Right, we're going we're gonna to find as we keep going, right, they're just throwing the kneading bowl over the shoulder and heading out the door. Get what you can and get out. That's how they're leaving. And what's, what, what this means, right, that when we have a new beginning, it means we have to cut ties with the old life. That's what we mean by the blood that severs. Yeah, the blood, this is a new beginning but it also means that our, our ties with the old life is severed. We've got to let it go. In fact, this ends up being one of the central problems that Israel has as we go through Exodus. It was, it was one thing to get them out of Egypt, but it was another thing altogether to get Egypt out of them. Several times they say, oh that, oh, that we were still back in Egypt. Did you bring us out here to kill us, to leave us in the desert? And anybody who's been newly converted to Christ... You have the same struggle, don't you? Maybe not even newly converted. Oh, I know it was slavery, but it was so much easier back then. I don't, I don't want to have to cut ties with my old life. I don't want to have to leave anything behind. But when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the call of the gospel. When Jesus, when Jesus repeatedly told people who were looking to follow him, he said, you've got to sacrifice yourself. You've got to lay down the life that you think you ought to have to take the life that I have for you. And that's always hard. It's harder to leave than it is to stay. But it's better. It's better to leave than it is to stay. It's better. While leaving slavery may be harder, it is certainly better. The blood to remember, the blood that severs, the blood that binds. Did you notice how much this was, this was a community event? In verses 3 and 4, God tells Moses to gather the whole congregation together and gives instructions for each household. Every household absor- observe this collectively as part of the whole community. Right? So that means this. No one eats this meal by themselves. If your household was too small, if you were a widow or a single mom, you got to join up with another household. Because this is a community deal. We are the people together. Yes, God is concerned with individuals, but ultimately is concerned with the whole of the people. This is a meal that binds, a blood that binds us together. And there's a principle of unity here. I mean, there were thousands of these People, thousands of Israelites, you got to believe that their personalities were different, their temperaments were different. They were probably people they didn't like, right? And yet here they are all doing the same thing together. They will all be covered under the blood of the Lamb. This is, this is a marker for all of them. And it's still a marker for us today. Those who are named under Jesus' name. Those who have Jesus' blood symbolically not painted over the doors of our homes, but painted over our hearts. We have this in common. No one goes it alone. We are in this together. And this is a principle that we need to live into. This is that we have the blood that binds it's interesting why, why the firstborn? It's interesting if you go back to Exodus chapter four, God gives Moses a foretaste of what's going to happen. Exodus 4:22. This is before Moses has even gotten into Egypt. God is giving Moses instructions about how this is all going to go down. he says this in 4:22. "You will say to Pharaoh, "Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son." Here's you know what he didn't say? Israel are my firstborn sons and daughters. He claims them as one collective whole. Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. Right? My son, all of these people of Israel, my church, they're done serving you. It's time for you to let them go. They're going to serve me. This is the blood that binds us together. Not as Israel, as the church, as the true Israel is the way that the New Testament talks about it. The blood to remember, the blood that severs, the blood that binds, the blood that redeems. And now we're really beginning to get down to the heart of the matter. Why did they need this feast? Why did they need to slaughter a lamb? I mean, God, uh, God could just uh, go through and, and judge the firstborn of Egypt, right? He didn't, he didn't have to cause them uh, to go through all these motions. And, and what's up with the dried blood on the door? Why that? I mean, in, in past plagues, in the earlier nine... God set His people apart without them doing anything, right? It says He knew their boundaries. He took care of their livestock. He gave them light when the rest of Egypt was in darkness. They didn't do anything for that. They were just covered. They were just protected. Now, all of a sudden, they have to do something. Okay? So the blood is not for Him. I mean, think about this. God is omnipotent. That means he's all-knowing, right? So the Lord doesn't have to walk up to Neil's house and say, Oh, he's got the blood. All right, we're good, right? It's not a sign for the Lord. It's a sign for the people in the house. It's a sign of faithful obedience. God said, do this so that I will pass over you. So it's a sign of trust, Right? It's a sign of trust that I'm going to take this lamb the way that you told me to, and I'm going to paint it over the door. God doesn't, An all-knowing God doesn't need dried blood on a door to know who's kept the feast and who hasn't. He already knows that. So what's going on here? Look at verses 5 and 6. Let's kind of uh, look at the, uh, just the nature of the sacrifice here. He tells them to make a count for everybody, make sure that they've, they're going to have enough and not too much. And then he says, your lamb must be without blemish, a, m- a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Keep it for four days, and then all of you together will, will slaughter your lambs at twilight. Do you notice he said it must be a lamb without blemish. He must be perfect. The blood of this uh, the centerpiece of this meal, the lamb, must be without blemish. He, he can't be lame, he can't be blind, can't be injured, which, by the way, in animal husbandry, that's pretty common that you have an animal with some sort of defect, but that's not going to cut it for the sacrifice. It has to be absolutely perfect. can't be lame, can't be blind, can't be injured. It must be a perfect sacrifice. And then he tells them to do this. Verse 7, take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel. That's the, the part over the top. All right. Uh, verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you. Verse 21, Moses called all, calls all the elders together. says, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans. Uh, kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in blood that's in the basin. Touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses. So somehow, some way, this blood, this perfect blood covers that household. And that covering keeps the destroyer away. It is what safeguards the people. It's what safeguards the house. Now, what's really odd about that is the the people know what they're up against, right? Um, This is the most powerful nation on the planet. Uh, Its army was better economy was better, right? The people of Israel don't rise up in rebellion. Instead, they do this simple act of faith. They simply trust that what the Lord says will come true. And now I'm skipping ahead to my last point, but we're not there yet. Hold on. I want you to notice that there are actually, there, there are a couple of deaths here. If you were to fast forward to Exodus 12, verse 30, when the death of the firstborn occurs, it says there was not a house in Egypt with someone who was not dead. Every single house in Egypt was touched with death. But did you notice that every house in Israel is touched with death as well? There's not a house in Israel where someone or something did not die. What happens is instead of the firstborn of Israel dying... The lamb dies in his place or her place. The lamb, the perfect lamb, the spotless lamb, becomes a substitute to cover and safeguard the family. You see, Israel is not spared for nothing. The, the, the saying goes, it's actually on a war monument in Washington, D.C. Freedom is not free. Israel is not spared for nothing. Israel is spared because a perfect sacrifice had to die in its place. And so when the Lord passes through Egypt on his way to judgment, he sees the substitute. He sees the blood and he says, mercy. He spares them. He passes over them in mercy. The blood that redeems, the blood to trust. See, in order to be passed over, in order to receive God's mercy, you had to paint the blood and you had to eat the meat. You had to participate. In other words, you had to believe that what God promised was going to happen was going to happen. You had to trust Him that this sacrifice would do the job. Israel doesn't take up arms against Egypt, Israel doesn't sneak out by night. Israel sits back and under the blood of the Lamb they let God go to work. And so they trust the blood that is painted on the doorpost. More precisely, they trust uh, they trust Yahweh who commanded the blood. Think about that. In what in what crazy world would would painting Blood around a door spelled defeat for the most powerful nation on the planet. It really, doesn't, it really doesn't make any sense. God says to Israel, hey, you want to get out of here alive? Just do this simple thing. It's crazy, right? Well, that same world where trusting in something so crazy is a man who said he was God was then shamefully crucified as a common criminal, and then rose again to new life. Trusting in that lamb is what gets you covered. In fact, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not the sin simply of Israel, but the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's our new beginning. He severs us from the old life and binds us into a new one together. He is the one who covers us. He is the one who redeems us. And it is in His perfect, spotless sacrifice that we must trust if we are to be set free from our Slavery to sin. Let's pray.